0: Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in his plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. If you have your Bible tonight, you can open it to 2 Samuel chapter 3. If you need a Bible, the ushers are coming up and down the aisles right now. They'll pass one to you, just get their attention so you can follow along with us. Um, what, a, what a good thing to be in the house of the Lord. Um, Dave did a great job last week, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) 7.55. Why are you laughing? (laughs) Man. I'm going to read chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. That's where the study is tonight. And, uh, And then we'll pray. And then we will get into it. So if you would, just draw your attention with me uh, to the word. And let's read what God says to us. He says this, chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Now there was long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David waxed stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. And unto David were sons born in Hebron. And his firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam the Jezreelitess. And his second, Chiliab of Abigail, the wife of Nabal the Carmelite. And the third, Absalom, the son of Meacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Gesher. And the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. And the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithriam, by Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. And it came to pass while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David that Abner, Saul's former general, made himself strong for the house of Saul. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ahiah. And Ishbosheth, that's Saul's son, he is the successor to Saul's throne, he's temporarily wearing the crown. He said to Abner, "Wherefore hast thou, or why have you gone in to my father's concubine?" That's just a, a term for saying, "Why have you had sex with, or had relations with, my father's concubine, Rizpah?" Then Abner was very wroth for the words of Ishbosheth, and said, "Am I a dog's head, which against Judah?" Do show kindness this day unto the house of Saul your father, to his brethren and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David, that you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman? So do God to Abner, and more also, except as the Lord has sworn to David, even so I do to him to translate the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan even to Beersheba. And he could not answer Abner a word again, that is Esbosheth, because he feared him. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, Whose is the land? Saying also, Make your league with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring about all Israel unto thee. And he said, David replies, Well, I will make a league with you, but one thing I will require of you that is, you shall not see my face except you first bring Mikal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. That was David's wife. David says, And David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son saying, Deliver me my wife Michal, which I espoused to me for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Michal had been promised to, to David. She was the daughter of Saul. Saul tried to set David up. He said, If you bring me a hundred Philistine foreskins, I'll give you Michal to your wife. David gave him two hundred. So she was his wife. He paid in full the dowry. But then in Saul's jealousy, he gave her to someone else. And so now David says, You want to come to me? Bring me Michal. So, Ishbosheth, verse 15, sent and took her from her husband, even from Faltiel the son of Laish. And her husband went with her along, weeping behind her to Baharim. Then said Abner unto him, Go return. He, go home. And he returned. When Abner says go home, I guess you listen. So, Abner had communication with the elders of Israel, saying, You sought for David in times past to be king over you. Now then, do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David I will save my people Israel out of the hand of the Philistines and out of the hand of all their enemies. And Abner also spoke in the ears of Benjamin. And Abner went also to speak in the ears of David in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and all that seemed good to the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner came to David, to Hebron, and twenty men with him, And David made Abner and his men that were with him a feast. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go, and I will gather all Israel unto my Lord the king, that they may make a league with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. And David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Let's pray. (coughs) Excuse me. Father, we just come again, and we thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, this passage that is so amazing to us to read that, that events like these could be part of the story that would lead to the coming of your son and the establishing of the kingdom that would bring forth Christ, Lord. It's amazing to us. And, and we just thank you that you're God, that you're the God who ordains every circumstance. And we lift this word to you tonight and pray, Lord, that you would cause it to produce in our hearts, in our minds, and in our spirit that which you have intended And that which you've seen in drawing us here. So we pray that you bless this word and bless this time. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're just joining us right in the middle of this continual saga of David's journey from the sheepfold to the throne. We've been following his life. And David really is one of the the great heroes of the Bible. And really one of the great heroes of history. And, and and certainly that's because some of the things that he's done, we know of the story of David and Goliath, he's a giant slayer, we know that he's a great warrior, uh, we know that his story is a rags to riches type story from, uh, from the farmer to famous kind of a thing, but probably the, the thing that makes David the greatest in the Bible and in history is not the things that he did and accomplished outwardly, but probably it's really the honor that he received from God himself. Uh, the fact that God speaks and, and thinks so highly of David, you know, that one of the titles that God gives David in the Bible is that he is the, the of Jesus. It says that Jesus is the son of David, that God actually calls his Son, his only begotten son, Jesus, the Savior of the world, and makes one of his titles that he's the son of David. And and certainly that is a reference to the lineage, the fact that Jesus is a direct descendant from David, and, and thus he is literally, in a sense, his son. But there was many that were in that lineage as well. But David is singled out, and Jesus is called the son of David. And I believe that God did that not just because of the the, the lineage that David possessed, but rather because of the, uh, the personality, the person that David was. That he was a reflection of Jesus. That God saw Christ in David. And so God calls him the son of David. And certainly there are many similarities between David, the man that we read of in the scripture, and Jesus, the God-man that we read of in the gospels. Concerning those two, we know that both of them, both David and Jesus, were appointed long before their time. We know that long before even Samuel went to pour oil on the head of David when he was just a farmer. God already spoke concerning David and he said, I have found me a king after my own heart. Before David had been prepared, before anything had happened, God already spoke of him. And we know that concerning Jesus, it says that Jesus was a lamb that had been slain from the foundation of the world, that God knew what he was going to do long before it ever happened. They bear that resemblance. We know that both David and Jesus, they both had a long season of preparation David, the better part of a decade, living amongst the people of God as a fugitive, suffering, being tested, being purified, being refined, being taught, being prepared, ultimately to come to the place where he would have the character and the substance and the ability to rule. We know of Jesus that for 30 years he lived in obscurity. He was qualified at any time, but he was identifying with the creation. He was living as a man, he was feeling the weakness of human flesh, he was feeling the temptations, he was feeling the reproaches of growing up in Israel, the difficulty of being a child, being misunderstood, being mistreated, identifying with the humanity that he would save by pouring out his blood, ultimately to become their king. We know that both of them were anointed three times. We talked about David in a previous study that he was anointed at the beginning by Samuel before anything happened. And then he was anointed by the tribe of Judah at the time that his character had been tested and they recognized kingship in him. And then David will ultimately be anointed by the entire nation they will unify under david and he'll be anointed that third time jesus the same thing jesus was anointed at his birth by the wise men they brought gold and frankincense and myrrh and it was a prophetic implication of what he was who he was what he would become before any of it was lived out it was there it was done And then at the time when Jesus first began his ministry, he was anointed the second time by the father, his character being proven, the father speaking from heaven and saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He's qualified. And then Jesus being anointed the third time by Mary of Bethany just before he would go to the cross. And Jesus saying that this she has done to prepare for my death. And it was a testimony of his resurrection to the fact that he would be made by God to have the name that's above every other name, making him the king of the entire universe, the heir of the throne. Both of them anointed three times. We know that both of them took the place of an imposter king. Saul was the rightful king of Israel for a season, but God took his spirit from Saul, and Saul was no longer God's king, but Saul held on to that crown, usurping the place of king, even though he was no longer to be, and it wasn't until the appointed time of the father that he would be dispossessed of that, and David would take his place. We know concerning Jesus, we know that Satan was called by Christ himself the prince of this world. Satan said to Jesus that all of the kingdoms of the world are delivered into my hand and I can give them to whoever I want. And Jesus didn't argue and say, no, you're not. Because it was true, Satan was the usurping prince of the power of the air. But in the timing of the father, the devil will be dispossessed of that. And one day, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And so both of them took the place of an imposter king. And both of them also will come to full power in the father's time. But it will be anything but a straight line to get there. It will be done in God's way and in God's time. And in that, saying that, as we come into this chapter, we are put to the saga, the continuing saga, of the war between these two kingdoms, the kingdom of Saul, the usurper and the kingdom of David, whom ultimately is the one that God is raising up to be the leader and the shepherd over His people. the The chapter that we read, or the segment that we read, begins with a statement concerning that conflict. It says that there was long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and that David was waxing stronger and stronger, but Saul was waxing weaker. And weaker, okay? Now, David at this time has already risen to become the king over one of the tribes. But Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, he is still the king over the other tribes that are known as Israel. Okay, so you have David over the one tribe, Ishbosheth, and Abner, who is really the leader. He's the strength behind it. They are over the other kingdom, and there's this war that's happening. But here's the interesting thing about, about where David is at and where David is going, is that there is absolutely no way that David could have manipulated or conspired his way into the position that he's in. If you follow all of the things that have happened that have led David to where he is and you continue to follow them to where he will be when he is the king over the unified nation, there's no way that David could ever take credit for it or say that he did it by himself. The sequence of events and the way things fell out and where he was at the right time talking to the right person or at the moment when the giant comes out or all of the things that happened that brought David unto that point, unto that moment, all of it was God. God anointed him, God chose him, God promised him that he would be it and we see that God did it. And it would be impossible for David to do it himself. In Psalm 77 verse 19, David would write, and he would say that God's pathway is in the sea, that his path is in the great waters, and his footsteps are not known. In other words, wherever God is taking one of his people, you will never be able to figure out how to get there, and when you get there, you'll never figure out how you got there. God does it, he leads it, and you've got to understand this, is that anything that's truly been given to you by God, anything that you will ever possess for yourself, any place that you ever end up, any position that you have, if it's really yours from God, there is no way that you'll ever be able to figure out how to get there yourself. And once you get there, you won't be able to figure out how it happened. You'll kind of look around and be like, how did I get here? <laughs> you know? and, and it won't make sense to you. You won't see it. Okay? Now, I say that here because now that it's happening for David, now that he's been anointed king over one tribe and will soon be anointed king over all the tribes, we see a subtle shift in David, okay? Because he goes from walking this path that he did not understand and ending up where he's supposed to to now being in a place where he does understand and he begins to now chart a course and walk on a path that he can understand. If you notice the verses that follow, verses 2 through 5, you'll read about six wives that David now adds to his harem, wives and concubines, and the sons that came from them. And it's an interesting thing as you read it, because what you notice, and in the context of it, it has nothing to do with just giving us like a quick journal entry concerning the things that were going on in David's personal life. This isn't tabloid-type stuff that we're reading about here. No, this is part of the strengthening of David's kingdom. It says that the house of David grew stronger and the house of Saul grew weaker. Here's what David's doing. He's building a dynasty. He's taking wives strategically. They're from different places. One, a Jezreelite. One is actually the daughter of a foreign king, a foreign national from that land. It's strategic. He's positioning. He's putting things in such a way where he knows that these other places have a stake in his success, that if he succeeds, they succeed. If he fails, it hurts them as well. This is strategic. David is building a dynasty here. He meets, uh, comes to wife count seven. Now, at this time, and it will continue. Now, I know that there's a great big elephant in the room as soon as I say that, because I could just go on and we could continue talking about the saga between the two. But you're saying seven wives. You're saying this is a man after God's own heart. This is a man whom we're to model our lives after. And David had seven wives. What's the deal with polygamy in the Bible? Because we see polygamy in the Bible. And it's important to understand that polygamy is never expressly forbidden in the law of Moses. God never says that, they can't, that you can't have more than one wife. Now, God did lay forth the example of what marriage is supposed to be. It says that a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, not his wives and they too shall be one flesh. Then God illustrated it by making Adam, giving him a wife, and they made it 900 years plus together, and there was no other Mrs. Adam. There was just Adam and Eve. Jesus ratified God's model of marriage by quoting from Genesis chapter 2 and saying, Jesus said that God said in the beginning, the man shall leave his father and mother, cleaves to his wife, and they two shall be one flesh. And so God said, this is what it is, and this is how it's supposed to work. And then we see in the Bible that people added wives, and God doesn't give his approval, nor does he condone it. He does neither one or the other. He just lets us see how it all works out. And there's not one instance in the Bible where a polygamous relationship is to the advantage of the people that were a part of it. It is always, every time, a family disaster. Did you notice three of the names of the sons that came from David's initial take when he had his first seven wives? There's three names there. There's Amnon, There's Absalom, and there's Adonijah. And as we progress through the life of David, you will see that the biggest problems that David has in his life are the byproduct of those three names, of those three people. The biggest headaches that David has are the byproduct of those three people. David didn't need at this point in his establishing kingdom to take things into his own hands and begin to strengthen his own position according to worldly means. This is David. This isn't God. God got David there without David helping. And God knows how to keep David there without David helping. You know, what's interesting is that there is one place in the Bible where polygamy is expressly forbidden. Do you know where? With Kings. God said, concerning the king that will one day rule over you, it's Deuteronomy 17, 17. God says that the king that I appoint, that he is not to multiply wives. Interesting. He doesn't say it concerning anyone else, but he says, this is going to be a problem for kings. And it was, it was cultural. It was strategy. It made sense. It happened. We see Solomon do the same thing later on, but there's not one instant where it works out to the benefit. Now, I know that there's someone who's either listening to me right now or that will hear this message sometime in the future on the recording, and they'll be like, God didn't forbid it. God didn't forbid it. I can do it. God didn't forbid it. I can do it. It's okay. David did it. And I feel like I'm a David. And so I'm going to do it and it's okay. And I'm going to have more than one wife. I'm going to say this to you. If you're listening to me and you are even thinking that way a little bit right now. Okay. Number one, number one, and I will give you permission to think that way. If you can meet this criteria, number one, if you are the monarch in a monarchy, go ahead. Okay, if you are the monarch in a monarchy, go ahead, take as many wives as you want, okay? God bless you, all right? Number two, number two. Okay, you say, okay, that's not realistic, okay? I'll give you another one. If you can get them all to agree, all right? If you can do it, now I'm not, because he was going to say, well, I have one over here and I have one over here and this one doesn't know about this one, but I'm David. No, 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 no. If you get them all to agree, That, okay, I'm into this. I agree, this is a good idea. All right? (laughs) You know, and you can work out all that logistically, then God bless you. Okay? But otherwise, do it God's way. You'll be much happier. There is, and so for some of you that are like, oh, I was really hoping that you would give me permission. Listen, there is a day coming, all right? There is a day coming when polygamy will come back again. It's gonna come back around, and it will be acceptable. God even says that it's gonna happen. In Isaiah chapter 41, God says that in the end times, men are going to get wiped out so much that the ratio of men to women is going to be seven to one so that seven women will come to one man and say, would you just please, we'll pay for our own food, we'll take care of ourselves, but can we just be married to you so that you can take away our reproach? That's what's going to happen. You can read Isaiah 41, you're not going to want that, okay? Because God says that those women that come in that way in that time, they're going to be sickly, they're going to be bald. And they're going to be smelly. That's what God says concerning them. All right. So you can wait for that time and you can have at it when you get there, if that's what you still want. All right. A little lightheartedness in this issue uh, that's right here before us. But David is building this thing. All right. Uh, in, in all of it. But, but coming back to like the, the point, you know, instead of thinking that we just wasted time talking about that for, for five minutes. Here's, here's the idea. Here's the point is that if God brings you to a place, and God is bringing you to a place, he brings us out of the world that he might bring us into his plan and into his purpose. And he doesn't do it via a straight line. We can't understand the pathway through the waters. But if God brings us to a place, he doesn't then need your help once you get there to keep you there. And what is it about us That once God does something for us, that we feel like we get to a place where now we're on our own and we have to help. It's almost as though the whole climb to get where we're going is like we're riding a bike with training wheels and God is pushing us up the hill. And we're going like, I can't do it. I can't do it. God, would you help me? And God's like, I'm going to help you. I'm going to get you there. And then we get to the top of the hill and we see everything. We couldn't see anything when we were climbing. Now we're at the top and we can see. And we're like, whoa, God. Look what you did, and this is perfect, and it fits, and this is my. And then we're like, I don't need these training wheels. I don't need you to go. I can do this now. And then we say, Thanks, God, and we go for it. God, I didn't know how I was going to get a man, but now I got one, and so I'm going to manage this relationship. I I, I didn't know how I was going to get wealth, it seemed like it was impossible but now that I've got it, God, I know how to manage it. I can do it. I didn't know how I was going to get established in this career or start this business or be in this place, but now that I'm there, I've got it, God. I can do it. Listen, wise and happy is the person that leans upon God to get where they're going and then continues to lean on him once they get there. Because this is going to be a problem for David. It's unnecessary. He doesn't need to do it, but he does it. Okay, now all of this is setting the stage for the undoing of Saul's kingdom. Because what happens next by the time we get to verse 6 is that it tells us that Abner was making himself strong for the house of Saul. And we've already seen in previous studies that Abner is the strength of this kingdom, of this system. We know that Abner was ruling for five years after the death of Saul before he appointed Ishbosheth to be the king. And that was probably done because of pressure from the tribes saying, Hey, you're not a descendant of Saul. Why do you have so much power? And he said, Oh, fine. Ishbosheth, get out of bed. Come here a minute. And Ishbosheth comes over. He says, Put pants on. He puts the pants on. He says, Comb your hair. He combs his hair. Put this crown on. He says, puts a crown on. That's the kind of man that Ishbosheth was. We've seen it. We'll see it again. He had nothing, he was completely weak. And then Abner says, Behold your king. Now go back home and let me run things. And that was what Abner did. He made himself strong. Well, Ishbosheth, two years in now to this reign, he begins to feel like, "Hey, I am the king. I've got a crown, and that guy Abner, he's kind of holding all the power." And so Abner is approached by Ishbosheth, and Ishbosheth says to him, "Hey, buddy, why are you sleeping with Saul's concubine?" And he starts a fight. He goes in to Abner. Now we know what kind of guy Abner is because we've already seen him, right? He tells this guy, go home. The guy says, all right, I'll go home. You know, it's not a good idea. Abner's a tough guy. And ish he's kind of feeling kind of puffed up in his chest. He goes, poke, and he pokes at Abner. And he says, why'd you go into my father's concubine? Now let me pause and just say this for a minute. When a king would die or if he would be overthrown, whether it was succession or whether he was overthrown, All of his possessions would be passed on to the successor, the one who was taking over, the silver, the gold, also the concubines. They were not considered legal wives. They were considered property or second class wives. That was the culture. That was the context. And so oftentimes, as a show of strength, as a show of authority, the coming king would absorb the harem of concubines that was the king's previously. We're going to see this again. When Absalom tries to overthrow his father David later on, a little bit of a spoiler alert, he takes 10 of David's concubines and he goes up on the roof and he has relationships with them, out in public where everyone can see it. It's an obvious play on the throne. He's saying, I'm the new authority in Israel. We're going to see it again in the kingdom of Solomon when Adonijah, another one of those three first sons of David, will come to Solomon and say, hey, remember Abishag, the hot water bag that David needed when he couldn't stay warm at night? Never had relations with her, never technically married her, though she had the, you know, kind of the, the, the place of a concubine. Can I marry her? And Solomon kills the guy because Solomon understands what Adonijah is just trying to do. He's trying to take authority to himself. And so by Ishbosheth coming to Abner here and saying, "Why did you sleep with Rizpah?" He's saying, "You Abner are trying to take the place of king. I'm king. I'm the one that's wearing the crown." Now Abner is not one to be poked. He's not one to be pushed, and he doesn't want to be messed with. And so Abner replies to Ishbosheth and he says, Am I a dog's head who against Judah do show kindness to your father's household, to his family, and to his friends? He's like, Listen, you're calling me a scavenger. That's the idea behind a dog's head. If you, if you get, can get into the head of a dog, a dog is always doing what a dog wants to do. They do what they have to do to get what they have to do. Don't think of the little pet that jumps up on your lap and loves you when you come home. Think of the coyote that wants to kill your kids. Okay, the scavenger dog. That's the idea behind this. And, and, and Abner's saying, like, look, look at my track record. Okay, I kept your father. When he died, I kept things stable. I've given you the crown. I've done everything for the tribe of Benjamin and for the tribes of Israel to keep things in order. And now you're laying this accusation on me that I slept with this woman. Now, did Abner sleep with the woman? Probably. I don't know. It doesn't say whether he did it or not. But his reaction to Abner shows the division that existed and the weakness of the kingdom, okay? Now, Abner knows three things in this whole thing. Abner knows, first of all, that he will not be able to leverage his position to become the king. He doesn't have the political clout to do that because the cultural mind of God's people was succession. It has to be a descendant of Saul. Abner was not. He didn't have that ability, couldn't leverage that. He knows it. He's not stupid, okay? He knows secondarily that Ishbosheth is not strong enough to hold it all together. That if you take Abner out of the equation, Ishbosheth doesn't have a clue. He cannot lead, he cannot rule the nation. Abner knows that. And the most important thing that Abner knows is that God is raising up David. He says it out of his own mouth in his reply to Abner. He says, didn't God say that David will be the king? Okay? So Abner gets angry at Ishbosheth. Knows that he doesn't have the power to be king, but here's what he does know is that he has the power to make the king. That's what Ishbosheth already did. He made, I'm sorry, not Ishbosheth, Abner he made Ishbosheth king. It tells us that in our last study in the previous chapter, that Abner made Ishbosheth king. He was the one that was influencing the mind of the nation. He unified them under Ishbosheth. And what he knows now is that he has the ability and the power to influence the entire nation to unify and rally under David. And so that is the intention. That's what Abner says to Ishbosheth that he's going to do right now. He says, you're going to poke me. Well, I'm going to poke you back. And you're not going to like what happens because it's going to mean the end of your reign. Okay, so here's now we get to verse 12. Here's what Abner does. First, he sends a letter to David and he engages him in dialogue. And he says to him, he says, listen, I want to bring all of the nation under your lordship. So make a league with me. Make a contract with me. Let's make an alliance here and I will make you the king over the entire nation. I have the ability to do it. Now, David gets this letter and David says, good, this is good. This is what God promised. This is the will of God. This is the way things have been going all along. If Abner's got my back, this is not a bad thing. But David needs to, and he's wise to, David is a man, he's strong, he needs to test the sincerity of Abner. So David says to Abner, he says, look, I want to know that you're sincere. So I will agree to make a covenant with you on one condition. You go get Michal, who was given to this guy, Faltial, and you bring me the wife that I paid for. You do it. And when you do that, I know that you will have tarnished your reputation in the house of Saul and made yourself a reproach to the people of Benjamin and Israel. That they will see that you have defected, not just with your words, but you've done it with your actions. You've shown that your allegiance is actually with me. And so Abner says, I am with you. I'm going to do it. And so a message is sent to Ishbosheth. Make sure that McCall is brought. Abner goes, and personally, I wonder what that was like. Can you imagine Abner just goes there? He doesn't knock. He doesn't hit the ring, you know, ding, 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 you know, and the whole thing. He just opens the door. He goes, hey, McCall, come on. You're going to David. And she's like, David, you know, this guy, he's not much. David, he's, I'll go. So she goes. This guy goes, no, no, you, you can't do that. This my, is this my wife. You can't take my wife. He's like, I'm going to take your wife. Come on. And she goes. She doesn't resist. She doesn't. She's not like, no, I got a new life here. She just goes. So this kind of woman she is, and we'll see. She's no treasure for David either later on. She's going to cause a lot of problems for David. You know, they're going along. This guy's going, no, don't do it. Abner turns around and goes, listen, stop. Go home. Guy turns around. Guy goes home. That's the end of it. You know, so now Abner does it. He gives Mikal to David, but then he says, I'm going to go one step further. I'm not just going to do this thing that will break my ties and burn my bridges with Ishbosheth and the household of Saul. He says, I am going to go one step further and I'm going to be an ambassador for David to the nation. That's what it says in verse 17. It says that Abner had communication with the elders of Israel, saying to them, you sought for David in times past to be king over you. Now then do it. For the Lord has spoken of David saying, by the hand of my servant, David, I will save my people, Israel out of the hand of the Philistines and out of the hand of all their enemies. He's a real politician, isn't he? Right? Because he he invokes God. He says, Hey, if you want to be on God's side, you better be with David. And he's also for the people. He says, you don't like the taxes that the Philistines are charging you, right, in the rulership? Well, David's the one that God is going to use to get you out from under the hand of the Philistines and all of your enemies. So Abner also spoke in the ears of Benjamin. Benjamin was Saul's tribe. He had to make a specific appeal to the people of Saul concerning David. And then watch this. And Abner went also to speak in the ears of David in Hebron all that seemed good to Israel and all that seemed good to the whole house of Benjamin. And so he plays intercessor here. He goes to Israel and Benjamin and says, hey, you guys need to to get behind David. He's God's choice. He's the one that's going to lead. He's got the strength to do it. Then he goes back to David and he says, listen, if you want to win the hearts of Israel and Benjamin, this is the way they think. These are the things that they're concerned with. These are the issues and the priorities that they have. And if you, as their king, lead them this way, they will get behind you and rally underneath you and you will be the king. You can rule over all that you want. And so not only does he meet the condition of bringing Micah, but he takes the initiative because that's the kind of man Abner was to go and be the intercessor between David and the people that ultimately he would rule over. Well, in verse 20, now Abner comes to David officially. The contract is going to be signed. They have a, an accord at Camp David. And it says that Abner came to Hebron, 20 men with him. And I love this passage. And it says that David made Abner and the men that were with him a feast. Now, I just want to let that sink in for just a minute. Because if you think about all of the trouble that Abner has caused David. I mean, all of the times that Abner was leading the campaign to try to kill David and take him out during all of the years of his preparation. Abner was the one that was behind at least aggression. The aggress- Saul was the, the one who was leading it, but Abner was the, the doer of it. And now he comes to David, and David was to say, do you realize what you, what you put me through? Do you realize that, that the gray hair that I have as a 37-year-old male is because of you? Do you realize that I still have night terrors because of the things that I had to endure during those seasons and times when I didn't know if I was going to eat the next day, much less live the next day? And now you think you're just going to come in here with your men and that you can just be a part of this whole thing and be an ambassador for me and have a position in my cabinet. You think, David doesn't do it. Abner knocks on the door. He says, okay, I'm here. David says, I've been waiting. He says, come in. I can't wait for you to see. Look at, look at the people I've got preparing for us. Look at this feast. I want you to be a part of this buffet. Bring your men inside. Take your shoes off. Be at home. You're welcome at my table. Come into my house. And he invites... Abner. Do, do you realize why David was called a man after God's own heart? Do you realize how much like Jesus David is in all of this? And Abner is so taken by the mercy. Remember the, remember the story of the tax collector Zacchaeus? He was hated by Israel, hated because he was a tax collector and an Israelite, but he wanted to get a glimpse of Jesus. He climbs up in this tree, and Jesus passes, and he stops. He's on his way. He's got a, an agenda. He's headed towards Jerusalem, and he looks up, and he sees Zacchaeus, this nothing man who is hated, no least esteemed, and he says to him, he says, Zacchaeus, I know your name. Come down. I want to eat at your house today, and Jesus embraces and accepts Zacchaeus as he is, and by the end of the meal, Zacchaeus says to David, I mean to Jesus, Zacchaeus says, anything that I've ever taken that is dishonest, I restore it fourfold. I just, I don't even want to live for myself anymore. The the kindness and the grace that you show me. That's exactly what we see in Abner here. Because Abner receives this mercy at the hand of King David and he says, I'm going to go and I'm going to gather all Israel to my Lord, the King, so that they make a league with you and that you, now think about how huge this is for Abner, Abner The kingmaker, Abner, the one who's been ruling as the shadow king, Abner, who is the deep state in the 10 tribes of Israel at this time, Abner, the power hungry Abner, says to David, That you may reign. He has never, ever said that concerning anybody before, that you may reign over all that your heart desires. And I love how it ends because it says, and David sent Abner away, and watch this, and he went in what? Peace. Probably the first time Abner has ever gone away in peace because now he's on the right side of the will of God and on the right side of the plan of God and what God is doing. And furthermore, he has brought his allegiance under the king of God the one whom God has chosen and the result is peace. He, here's the question. And this is the thought that I want to leave you with as we just wind down to a close here is that why did it take Abner so long to come to this place? I mean, it's been seven years since the passing of Saul at this time. Why did it take Abner so incredibly long? Because Abner knew already that David was God's choice to become the king. He said that twice in the passage that we read. He said it in verse 9 to Ishbosheth. He said, David is God's choice to become the king. He said it again in verse 18 when he spoke to the people at large. He said, you know that God has made David and called David to be the king over all of Israel from Dan to Beersheba from the top to the bottom, the entirety of the nation. He knew that that was God's will. Abner was there in first Samuel chapter 24, the first time that David spared Saul's life. Remember David was hiding in a cave. Saul needed a bathroom break. And so Saul goes in the thing and David's right there. And they're saying, kill him. He's right there. Kill him. Kill him. And David goes, No, I can't. I can't kill him. He's God's anointed. I can't touch him. That would be, a... I can't. I can't do it. And then when the whole thing is over, David comes out of the cave and he says, Hey, he says, Hey, Abner, you didn't protect the king. You should be dead for what you did. And I had the chance to kill you and I didn't, David said to Saul. And Saul spoke these words in front of Abner to David. It's 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 20. Listen, Saul says, And now behold, I know well that you will surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Swear now therefore unto me by the Lord that you will not cut off my seed after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore unto Saul and Saul went home, but David and his men got up into the hold. That means that not only was it just a passing word, but they had a covenant. They drew up a contract in front of Abner where Saul said, you will be king. And Abner heard it. Abner knew it that this was God's plan. So why did it take Abner seven years to come under David's reign and to bring his league in line with David? Here's why. Because though Abner knew that David was God's king, he didn't want to believe that David was God's king. Because Abner wanted a king that he could control. That's what Ishbosheth was. Abner made Ishbosheth king, and he was making him do whatever he wanted. He couldn't control David. David was morally superior to Abner, as we've seen, he was militarily stronger than Abner, as we've seen. And he is wiser than Abner, as we have seen, knowing how to move things around. He's stronger than Abner. Abner can't control David. And so David is resisting the lordship of David because he can't control him as his king. David, Abner wants a king he can control. Now let's shift it for one minute. Let's talk about the son of David. Why is it that there are so many people that know that Jesus is God's choice to be the king of the universe and the Lord of lords and the king of kings. They know it, but yet it takes them so long to come to the place where they bring their allegiance to him and serve him and become his subject. I mean, people know it, but they don't do it. Why? Because people want a king they can control. And so people say, I will wait and I will see if maybe there's a truth, maybe there's a person, maybe there's a path where I can kind of pick and choose what I want and I can control who's leading me. I can write the terms of how things are going to work in this life or in this kingdom. I can be Lord over my own existence even though I'm claiming subjection to a higher power. I'm going to find a God that will serve my image, what I want. And so I'll wait. I'll wait. That's what I'm going to do. until people come to realize that it doesn't work. Because any king that you think you control ultimately will come to the point like Ishbosheth does, where he says, "Hey, you think you're controlling me, but I'm the one wearing the crown." And I'm going to poke you in the eye. That's exactly what happens to Ishbo said. He's not as confident in the whole thing as he is. He's only growing weaker, and now the king that he appointed over himself is failing him. Isn't it? I, I mean, I don't take pleasure in anybody's suffering. Okay, that's probably a lie. I, there's probably people that I, I don't mind it so much when they suffer a little bit. But isn't it interesting right now how, how the governor of New York State is being eaten up by the machine that he helped build? You know, I, I know that I'm getting a lot of response right now because I just took the pressure off of you and put it on him, you know, <laughs> on things, you know, but, but there is something that happens is that the king that we appoint one day gets stronger than we thought that he was. And all of a sudden that king turns his back on us. The third problem is that your heart will never settle in that place. Did you, did you catch the last verse of the passage? It says that Abner went out in peace. And as long as I am following the wrong king or a king after my own making, I might be appeasing my conscience into thinking that I'm doing something or that I am something. But I know internally that I am not something. And there is no settling inside my heart. I had to drive down to New Rochelle this morning for a senseless purpose. It wasn't senseless totally, but it felt it. And I drove down 684, and I passed right by where uh, Purchase College is. And I, 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 I was a student at Purchase College when I gave my life to Jesus. And my first year there, my freshman, and I didn't graduate. As soon as I got saved, I dropped out because I had no reason to be there at all anymore, you know. But my first year that I was there, I was, I was the Abner of Abners. Okay, I had, I had a thousand applications out for different kings that I would be willing to follow. Okay, and there was, there was just nothing. My wife, who was at that time not my wife, had been my girlfriend, and we broke up because she gave her life to Jesus. And when she made her allegiance with the king, I said, I'm not going that way. I'm not going to do that. And I was really fighting with this, you know, because it was a big deal. Like she, she, she broke up, she, we broke up because of this whole thing. And, you know, and I was hurting and trying to figure it all out. And I, I was walking by this reservoir near Purchase College, one of the ones that you can see right off 684 down there. And I was in this really quiet place and I was writing, I was writing a journal entry. I'm not a journaler, but at that time I was very sentimental and uh, my heart was still soft and all that stuff, you know. And, and I was, I was writing in there and, and I was writing, uh, as though I was writing her a letter. It was a letter I never gave her, never sent to her. Um, but, but I was trying to, trying to sift through the, the hurt of all of it and, and the whole thing. And I remember writing the words. I, I don't have the thing anymore. I wish I did. But I remember writing the words in there and just saying that on the last day, you'll either rise or fall. But we'll see then. And when I wrote those words, I knew In my heart that she was right. I knew it. But I wouldn't admit it. I wouldn't believe it. Because I didn't want to believe it. But I knew it was true. I knew she was right. And I just wonder. How many people there are. That they already know. That Jesus is the king of kings. And the lord of lords. They already know that there is no name. Given among men under heaven. Whereby we must be saved but yet they don't come to him because they don't want it to be true because he is not a king that can be controlled. I ultimately did come to the place where, like Abner, I said, you can rule over whatsoever your heart desires in my life. And what I found is that like David received Abner, I was met with Jesus with mercy and open arms. He did, like David did, also test my allegiance. He didn't allow me to go back to my own life and leave the door open for me to come in and go out from him as I please. Like, I'll serve you if if you're good, but I'm just going to keep my allegiances with the world intact just in case. He didn't let me do that. He didn't let us do that. But over the past 20-something years, early 20, 21 maybe, he has blessed my life in ways that I could never imagine. He has led me in pathways through the waters that I cannot figure out the footsteps, that he has done the things to where he has brought me places to when I get there, I say, how did I end up here? And he has been so faithful every single day. But I can tell you this, he will not be controlled by me. Thank God. (laughs) He's the Lord. And you and I, have been given the distinct, unique privilege of being kingmakers because we choose who will rule over us. Whether it be a king made in the likeness of our own thoughts or our own desires or our own personality, you will grow weaker and weaker. Your king will crush you and you will never have peace. Or you can come to the son of David To the one who shed his blood to demonstrate his love for you. And you'll find in him a king who is competent, a king who is kind, a king who is good, and a king who is able, who is strong. How do I do it? Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10 says this. It says that if you will believe in your heart, or I'm sorry, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. That is, that you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord of your life. You make him the king of your life. And if you believe in your heart, faith is a choice. It's something that I choose to do. Now, if I'm believing something in my heart, then that means I am putting my allegiance in that something with all of my being. What did Abner say back in verse 10? He said, from Dan to Beersheba, from the top to the bottom. And so I believe him to be my king in every part of my life, from my thoughts to my feet where I go. I make him the Lord of all of my life and I believe him to be that. Then with that faith, I confess with my mouth, I want you to be my Lord. And the Bible says it's as simple as As that knocking on that door and he opens and says I've been waiting he doesn't say you do you realize what you've done look at the train wreck that is the the trail that's behind your, your footpath the things that you've said about me the damage you've done to my people to other people and you think you could just come yeah you could just come because of the cross I implore you tonight that if you have yet to make Jesus the king of your life or if you've maybe said it like yeah Jesus is my king but not Dan to Sheba, it's like I'm kind of here I'm kind of make Jesus your king Father we thank you tonight for your word we thank you Lord that you put these things in, in it Lord I cannot believe that the chapter we read tonight has politics and murder and power And adultery and polygamy, and that somehow through that mess of things, we're leading to the birth and coming of your Son, who's the Savior of the world. Your word is amazing. And we thank you, Lord, that you've given us this message, and that you've given us this privilege, and that you've given us this grace. So help us, Lord, help us to receive Jesus as our King, that we might come under your authority. That we might come under your lordship. That in our lives, you might rule over whatsoever your heart desires. And we ask, Lord, that you would send us out in peace. That we might be your subjects, your servants, and most importantly, your friends. You said, I no longer call you servants, but I've called you friends. So, Lord, make it so in every heart that's here for the lost and the saved. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.